morning, church. Good to see you. We have been, um, ooh, sorry. We have been preaching through Galatians. So Pastor James has been bringing us through chapters one and two in the first part of chapter three. He's not with us today, and so I am bringing us through the second part of chapter three. And so before I launch off, in case you missed one of the previous chapters, I'm just going to give you a quick recap of the context of Galatians. Yeah, so Paul is writing a letter to the church in Galatia because he has heard some news that Judaizers or people who are saying that you can only be God's people if you live like a Jew had come through and putting some pressure on the Galatians saying, you know, it's great that you have a Messiah named Jesus, but you don't really belong until you've been circumcised. You should also not eat pork. You should also follow all the rituals of cleansing, etc. And then you'll really belong. And unfortunately, the church in Galatia was like, oh, but we do want to belong. So that sounds like a pretty good idea. We'll, we can change. We can, we can get in line with all of your rules. And Paul writes a letter going, no, what are you doing? He uses quite strong language, although it might not sound strong to us. Oh, foolish Galatians is the start of chapter three. Foolish Galatians. And, you know, letters like this were often circulated to other cities. Can you imagine being someone, neighboring sitting, being like the foolish Galatians? <laughs> and so he's, you know, he's making quite a strong rebuke to them. How, how could you even imagine living by law when you have grace? Christ died for something, and that was to get rid of the law. And so he's making this case to them. He's making this point. And we could ask, what does that have to do with me today? I don't know about you. Have you seen any Judaizers in your neighborhood recently? Has anyone been telling you not to eat pork or questioning your consumption of shrimp? Me neither. Thankfully, we live in an age where the Protestant Reformation has really done a good work. We know that we're saved by faith. We know that we don't have to follow a lot of rules and rituals in order to belong to the people of God. And so we have something to be very grateful for. And yet, as Jamie has pointed out to us in the previous weeks, although we're saved by faith, we still somehow try to earn our favor with God by doing well by doing good things and good works. And somehow we believe that that kind of improves our status with God somehow, that we have a better place of belonging if we are a really good person. Um, and that's really not new to human history. Every religion has that kind of pool on it to be a good person, to not be a good person. Even people who don't practice a religion have that kind of tug of war going on to be a good person or not be a good person. Why? Because by nature, humans are legalistic. We do tend to judge other people and judge ourselves and try to sort out a place for ourselves in society by how we behave. We often search for value for our egos and being good, phrases that you might hear said to you by other people or that you might say yourself are, well, I just need to do better. I need to be better. I need to do more. And we say them to as like little like 
like little instructors sitting on our shoulder, hey, you can do better next time. And then you'll be more valuable, you'll be more important, or you'll, people will care about you more, or God will care about you more. God will fix your situation if you're just better. But all of those are lies, and Galatians is the proof of that. Paul clearly lays out that none of that is actually true. We belong because we have faith in Christ. We belong because God loves us. We belong because God loves us so much, he provided a way for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And today's passage, Paul uses a very, very interesting example from the Old Testament. Is it the best example to use? Yes. Did he reference random verses to make it? Yes. <laughs> it was kind of like, Paul, why are you jumping around like this? If you actually read chapter 3, verses 4 to 25, the argument kind of goes like this. And he's almost like he's talking to himself, kind of making arguments and counter-arguments. And so it can be easy to get lost in what he's saying. But what he's actually doing is he's using his opponent's words, the same words they said to convince Galatia that they needed to follow the law. He uses them and he goes, and this is why you don't have to follow the law. Because really, anyone who says that you have to live by law in order to be right before God is short-sighted and has not read the full context of scripture. Even, even if you didn't have the New Testament, which we're really grateful for, even in the context of the Old Testament, it's quite evident that you can belong to God's people without the law. So how is that possible? We are going to take a look at it. You can open your Bibles with me to um, Galatians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. We are going to do uh, verses 15 to 18 at first. And I'm very sorry I skipped the first slide. <laughs> All right, it begins like this. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Do you feel a little bit dizzy yet? <laughs> the passage that Paul is referring to is from the book of Genesis. God makes a promise to Abraham three times that he is going to provide Abraham with a son, an heir, that Abraham will be the father of many nations. It comes up in Genesis chapter 12. It comes up in Genesis chapter 15. It comes up in Genesis chapter 17. And it comes up in Genesis chapter, well, it's not a promise being made, but it's kind of like a reminder of promise in Genesis chapter 22. But in particular, Paul is referencing Genesis chapter 15 when the covenant is kind of confirmed by God for the first time. <clears throat> he says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, referencing 
kind of a distantly related person in Abraham's household. But one who will come forth from your own body, Abraham, he shall be your heir. And the Lord took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it, or God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And this is the foundation of Paul's argument. Abraham believed the Lord and was righteous before he did anything, before he was circumcised, before there was any law to follow, he was righteous. And God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So there was a second promise in addition to an heir, which was to possess a land. Now, now that we know that the passage is from Genesis, we know the promise that God has given, we're going to work through Paul's argument backwards. So we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go up, because it's actually easier to understand that way to a Western mind. So Emily's paraphrase of verse 18 is, if inheritance were to come by the law, that means if the blessing of God, such as the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, if belonging to God's people were to come by the law, then it would no longer come by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul's first point is that the method of delivery of inheritance can't change. If it was delivered by promise at first, it cannot change thereafter. One is kind of because of the distinction between law, covenant, and promise. Law involves two parties. One party has to do something and the other party rewards it. But promise is by one party. One person says they will do something and it is up to their will and faithfulness to keep it. Two different paradigms. So if God is instituting a promise to Abraham from the start by promise, God's promise dependent on his will and himself, it cannot then be dependent later on an agreement between two parties because God has already established it. God is already unchanging. God doesn't lie. He doesn't take his word back. And so this is the first assurance that Paul is giving us in verse 18. In verse 17, Emily's paraphrase is this. In fact, the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. So it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God and make the promise void. 430 years without law, what did the people do in that interim time? Were they not God's people because they didn't have the law? No, they were God's people because they had God's promise. So Paul is treating the law as an interim arrangement from the point of 430 years after the promise is given Abraham to the coming of Christ. Moreover, that period of time quite long, 430 years, and then from 430 years until coming of Christ was another several hundred years. How long, how long 
can a promise be kept for? I guess could be a good question, don't you think? I keep promises for about, I don't know, two or three months, because then I'll forget. But God doesn't forget. When God makes his covenant with Abraham or reiterates it in Genesis chapter 17, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. You are mine forever. Because why? Because I chose you. And I'm promising myself to you. So let's recap so far. In verse 18, Paul is making the argument that the method of delivery of inheritance and of blessing, of belonging to God, can't change. It was made by one party. It can't suddenly be agreement of two parties. The second thing, it was instituted 430 years before the law, and it is an everlasting covenant. Even more so, it cannot change. Then we'll skip verse 16, and we'll come right back to it. Verse 15, Paul's point is this. Even a human type of covenant, like, for example, a will, which is a lesser type of covenant than a covenant made by a divine being, God, cannot be changed by anyone once it is ratified. That is, no one changes what the author of a will writes once the author of the will has died. And especially not after the will has been received, the inheritance has been received by the inheritor or the heir. This is really, really interesting argument as well. Why? Because Paul, even though he's using a human example, is anticipating the work of Christ. Because his whole argument in Galatians is that, if you remember last week, verses 1 to 14, that we are inheritors through Christ because we share Abraham's faith. So the promise made to Abraham, we also get to receive because we have the same faith as Abraham. Abraham's faith was looking towards God and trusting on God to bring life from his dead body. That's a quote from Romans. Paul basically goes, Abraham's body was as good as dead. He was too old to have a child, and yet life came from it, yet a child was born. That's the same quality of faith that we have to believe that God could raise Jesus from the dead and give us life in our bodies when we die. It's the same faith. And who, who here in verse 15, when Paul says it cannot be changed once it is ratified, who is the person who is ratifying the promise of God? Jesus Christ, because Christ died and shed his blood for it, it is now a certain promise. It cannot be changed because God has already secured it by paying for it by his own son. And we have already received it as inheritors. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, and then again at the end of the passage from last week, verse 14, 
Paul makes the point that you have received the Holy Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians and in Ephesians and elsewhere, Paul will reiterate that the Holy Spirit is our deposit of an inheritance. It's the way we know we actually have an inheritance because the Holy Spirit allows us to experience God's presence with us even now, guaranteeing that we will have his presence with us forever later. And so Paul is saying, not only is it an everlasting promise by a God who doesn't change, but also it's already been ratified and received. So how are you going to undo it by the law? You can't. Yes. Verse 16, we'll jump back to that. Goes like this. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. This verse has a little bit of cultural interpretation around it. When I read Genesis, I don't automatically think that the seed that's being promised to Abraham is Christ. At that point, when Abraham is receiving the promise, he's thinking, I'm going to have a son. The seed is his son, um, Ishmael or Isaac. And the word for seed in Hebrew can actually mean one, or the same word can mean a group. So it doesn't strictly mean one. So when you read Paul say this in Galatians, you go, Paul, you're a very smart man. And you know that this word could mean more than one. So what is the argument you're making here? But Paul is relying on his opponent's argument and Jewish interpretation. They're saying there can only be one inheritor, even though Abraham had two sons. So their point to Galatia was it has to be Isaac. You have to be through the seed of Isaac not through the seed of Ishmael, only Isaac's descendants are inheritors. That's why they said you have to be circumcised, et cetera, et cetera. But Paul's going, no, you know that Jewish interpretation says through Isaac and through David that there would be a Messiah who is also referenced as a seed, and that Messiah is Christ. Therefore, because Christ has died for everyone, and he references the promise again, saying the promise and the blessing is to all nations through Abraham. You cannot confine these people to just saying they have to be a son of Isaac, they have to be a Jew, they have to live like a Jew. It can be for anyone, to any people, anywhere, at any time because God designated the promise for all. So, Paul's point through these first four verses are that being right with God, belonging to God's people, receiving God's blessing, they cannot be dependent on the law because they are based on a promise assured by God alone 
to anyone who shares Abraham's faith and that from the very beginning, God's intent was to bless everyone in Christ, not just the ethnic descendants of Abraham. And that we know we have already received this promise because we have experienced the Holy Spirit. Now, are we good? We all followed that? I know it was a little bit, a little crazy at times. The next part then answers the obvious question that will come to your mind, which is why then the law? If it is a promise, why introduce the law in the first place and confuse us all? So in verses 19 to 20, Paul begins to explain this argument. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. If you're like me, when I read that for the first time, I said, huh? <laughs> so I looked into it a little deeper and I found some interesting points. Firstly, most important point is the law was added because of transgressions. Paul does not clarify what he means by this. And yes, it could mean a number of different things. But what most people think he was trying to say and agree on are these three things. First, that the law reveals sin. That Israel wouldn't well, let's take a step back. Let's take a step back. What is sin? Sin is anything that transgresses the law of God. So that's a circular argument. But we can also view sin as something that separates us from God, something that's different from his nature, his ethics, and his character. And doing anything from that then removes us from his presence because it, tra it transgresses his holiness. So how is Israel supposed to know if God wants to dwell with them and be amongst them as a people, how are they going to help steward his presence? How do they know what, what invites them into the same kind of character and ethic of God? Well, they have to have a law because otherwise our natural tendency, tendency to sin is going to lead us out of that relationship with God. So one, the law reveals what sin is. And secondly, the law points to what righteousness is. So that by seeing the law, we know what righteous character is, what is love, what is compassion, what is justice. And importantly, because the law shows us what righteousness and compassion and justice is, it also shows us what the Messiah will look like, what Jesus Christ would look like, and can give the people an expectation of who's going to fulfill all these things. And thirdly, it protects the receivers of the promise until Christ's coming. That's an interesting concept, which Paul goes on in the next couple of verses to describe as 
a guardian. So let's look at verses 21 to 25. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So Paul's argument here in verse 20 and then in 23 and 24, 25, is that the law protected those who were under it. There was a form of a, a guardian or in this translation, a tutor. And this was an actual person in Greek society that everybody would have been familiar with. This, this tutor would have um, kind of been a servant or a slave who took charge of young children from about the age of six until they reached puberty, so let's say about 13 or 14. And that person, that tutor, would walk them to school every day, sit and watch them while they had their lessons, getting the opportunity to learn themselves while they were there, and then walk the child home to the house. Why did they need a tutor to walk the child to school and walk the child home? Because at that time, there was a kind of rampant culture of pederasty. And so if a child walked by themselves to school, they were in danger of being molested by a stranger. And so this tutor was there to protect the child from being taken advantage of. And if the tutor was walking the child to school, walking the child back, the tutor was also teaching the child manners, how to be a respectful citizen in society, generally not be uh, a social menace. And so when the child did well, behaved well, and was an upstanding citizen by the time they were 13 or 14, the tutor received praise. You've raised this child well. When the child wasn't an upstanding citizen by the age of 13 or 14, the tutor would receive criticism. You haven't done a very good job with this kid. What's your issue? So this shows us two things. One, that as a guardian, that the law protects us. From what? From harm. From the sin that harms when we harm each other. Having a fear of punishment under the law keeps us from doing things that would hurt each other, doing things that would hurt ourselves, and ultimately doing things that would blind us to the nature of God. And secondly, it provided, if, if Israel was walking according to the law, it would provide a demonstration of the, of the tutor, of God himself. They would be a reflection of his image. So Paul is giving kind of a two-fold picture here. Now, hopefully that's made sense so far. The law has been added because of transgressions. It reveals sin. It shows us righteousness and therefore points us to Christ. It protects us 
from hurting one another, hurting ourselves, and also reveals the character of God for us as image bearers. So that's why the law, in spite of the coming grace in Christ. Now here's the important bit. The reason the law had to be the protector, the reason the law had to be the tutor is because they did not yet have the Holy Spirit because Christ hasn't come. But now we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit internally, he is our guide, he is our tutor, he is the one protecting us and leading us. And so that is why Paul's arguing the law is only an interim. He's not saying that the law is bad. In fact, Paul on many occasions throughout the New Testament affirms the ethics of the law. And Jesus teaches on the ethics of the law. And so do many of the other apostles. They affirm them. But they're just saying, you don't have to follow it, everything in the law to a T any longer because now you have the Holy Spirit to direct you. And if you are to ignore the direction of the Holy Spirit or are too afraid to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit or otherwise to mess up in sin, it doesn't matter. You still belong to God because God made a promise that he would give himself to you and secure you as his people. <clears throat> there are a couple of other things that come along with the promise. So how would we define it? Paul defines the promise as the presence of God. We know that because he points to the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit's dwelling with us. But we also have the promise that God gave to Abraham of the land, which at that time, throughout Jewish interpretation, and even when Paul was writing this letter, the land had come to mean the whole earth. And that interpretation sticks even through the rest of scripture and revelation till today, we can be quite confident that God intends, I know this kind of sounds arrogant, but it's not. God intends for his people to inherit the whole earth in righteousness, in justice, in perfection, in beauty. When we inherit the promise of life in the Holy Spirit, dwelling together with God forever, our inheritance is not floating on clouds, waving to each other as we play our harps. Hello, how is your cloud today? Very good, thank you. It is a restored heavens and a restored earth in perfection. Absolutely glorious. Colors that you've never seen, plants thriving, animals thriving, people thriving, perfect joy and perfect peace forevermore in the presence of our Savior whose presence I would not trade for anything in this world. His presence is so good. And God would not trade our presence for anything in this world. How crazy is that? That when he promised Abraham to bless all the nations, hundreds, yea, thousands of years ago, that he has been faithful to that promise because he doesn't want heaven without us. Because he absolutely wants to be near us, because he absolutely wants to shed his love on us, because he absolutely loves relationship. And so from the moment he releases the promise, 
He sets aside the law as a guardian to preserve hearts that are ready for them, or ready for him, until the Holy Spirit could come and dwell with us and direct us. And we're going to learn more about that guiding direction of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, which Jamie will get to. This is not for me to talk about, although I could. And so then we have this assurance now that when I'm having a week where God allows me to be more in touch with my weaknesses than I would like, I'm being held by the grace of God and his promise. And when I'm having a week where I'm particularly strong and doing well, I am being held by the grace of God and his promise. That all times, the blood of Christ is sufficient for me and draws me into relationship with the most beautiful being there is in the entire universe. How do we respond to that? Two things, that's four, two things. The first is say yes to God. If you haven't said yes to God, you've been kind of on the fence for a while about whether or not following God is worth it. The answer is yes. His presence is, will change your life. There's not a person in this room who's accepted Christ as their savior who said, I want to go back to the time before Christ was in my life. None of us. His presence changes everything. So if you don't know Christ, or if you've been far from him, the response is to come, come close to him again because nothing disqualifies you. And all of your attempts at being good, God will sweetly credit to you as, as love, trying to love him. And, and that's okay if you mess up. And the second response is worship. What can we do but give God honor and glory? Give him praise and magnify his name and love him well. Love him not only in our personal relationship with him, love him not only as a corporate body when we come together, but love him to other people. Like, God is so good and I love him so much, let me tell you about what he did for me this week. So that other people get a taste of how good he is, get a taste of his promise. And importantly, I think one of the values of going through Galatians together as a church at this time is to prepare us for people who will be coming through our doors. When there is revival, when God starts to move, there will be people coming through our doors hungry for the love of God who don't know the law or what scripture teaches, certainly don't walk in it, and who don't share maybe some of our cultural or ethnic customs. They'll have been raised in different places, follow different customs. And if we're not saturated in grace, if we're not saturated in the understanding that the promise is for everyone, no matter what their lives look like, no matter whether or not they seem to be walking closely with God or not, whether they seem to be doing well or not, according to the law, Unless we're saturated in grace, they'll never be able to come into the gospel because they'll feel like they don't belong. But the whole point is that you belong, no matter what your performance is like, 
And so there's this aspect as well, not just for us and realizing God's love for us, but preparing our hearts to receive anyone who comes to us, no matter where they are, and not get offended and not get judgmental, but to extend grace and love and belonging because God died for them too. And so we're going to wrap up the service. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you all to stand, and I'm going to ask the band to come up. And just by kind of the nature of today's sermon, I can't finish without um, offering salvation to anyone here who's not received it. I see a lot of familiar faces, so I know a lot of you have received the gospel. I've, I've heard some amens and yeses, so I know that you believe. But just in case there's someone here I don't know, if you can all pray together with me so that person doesn't feel left out or ashamed, and as you pray, just allow the grace of God to wash over you afresh. So Father in heaven, please pray it out loud. I said, yes, out loud. Thank you. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he died on a cross for my sin and that you raised him from the dead. Thank you for your love. I receive your gift of eternal life. Please forgive me of all my sin. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen.